Amen. Well, it's been said that everybody loves a good story. And if that's, if that's true, then many of you are going to love chapter 27 and 28. In it, there's intrigue, there's suspense, there's deception, there's a necromancer, which is someone who communicates with dead people. Uh, there is a, there's a dead uh, a prophet who comes back to life to, to curse the living. I mean, this is what epic movies are made of, are they not? And, and on top of that, we have two incredible stars, David and King Saul, people that we're well familiar with. Uh, but the focus is not simply just on these two characters. Really, the focus is on their troubles and their difficulties that they experience in these two chapters. How many of you have ever experienced difficulties? Anybody? Anybody at all? All right, that's, we're, we're, we're at a good start then. Um, you know, I've known some believers, no joke, that, and they're, they're great godly people, so it's not like they were bringing it upon themselves, but I, I know some believers that uh, they have more troubles and difficulties and experience that more than anybody I've ever seen in my life. In fact, if they didn't have trouble, they probably wouldn't know what to do with themselves, right? Uh, look, look, the chances are, is out of everybody here, some people have experienced difficulties in the past. Some people who are here are probably experiencing them right now. And if you're like me and always paranoid, then you, you, you have this sneaking suspicion that troubles are on their way, right? And, and if that's you, and, and really I think that that really covers probably everybody who is in here, then I think this sermon is for you. And here's why, because the Bible clearly teaches, contrary to popular belief, that, that, that Christians, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, God's children, are not exempt from troubles in this life. They just simply aren't. In fact, the Word of God teaches us in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it tells us that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Get this, believer, how encouraging is this this Sunday morning? The Bible says, oh, you will go through an immense amount of difficulties before you see Jesus in heaven, all right? Surprise, right? So encouraging, uh, and, and so we, we know that. In fact, Peter uh, actually said this. Peter said, he goes, he, he was so confident that you and I would experience difficulties, challenges, and problems that he says, hey, listen, don't act. When these things come upon you, don't ask, act as so if some, some strange thing snuck up on you and surprised you. This is just the regular normative Christian life. And so what that means is this. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or whether you're not, and I believe we have both here today, your life will have troubles and difficulties. All of that is the same. What is different and what draws a radical distinction between the two is how the believer and the unbeliever approach and view those difficulties. So what we're going to do today is if you're going through difficulties, have been, or you're thinking about going through them quite soon, then I, I want to encourage you because there's a few things I want you to be aware of. But before we get to that, what I want to do is I want to begin by just kind of telling the story. If you've been around a little while, sometimes I kind of break the story up. Now I want to tell you the bulk of the story because only the bulk of the story is really going to help you to be able to draw the truths out that I believe that God has for us this morning. So let me begin just by kind of telling most of the story. Follow along if you don't. I know you're all sleepy. Y'all can go to sleep immediately after this, I promise, all right? Uh, once you get home, that is. Um, but to, our story really begins on a familiar note. David is really... Um, channeling his, his inner Forrest Gump, he's still running, all right? And uh, he's still running from Saul. Saul's going after him. And, uh, and really, he's pestered, he's pestered David so much that David finally gives up, and he says, I'm just going to leave the country for a second time. 
And now he's leaving the country, trying to get out of Dodge, and now he is going to find some kind of solace, some kind of comfort, some type of protection over with their number one enemies, the Philistines. Now, this is the first time he does this, but this time it actually went better than the first time. When he gets there, Achish, the king of Gath, actually kind of it becomes fond of David. And, and the reason is because he thinks that he's an ally. He believes that he's rejected Saul, rejected Israel, and now the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he takes him in basically to his home, into his kingdom, and he's taking care of him, and he's taking care of his wives and his 600 men and all of their families. All this goes swimmingly for a while until David suggests, he says, hey, listen, there's no reason for us to put you out like this, all right? It's, it, there's no reason for us to stick around too long. This is something that we hope sometimes when relatives say to us when they come into town, right? One time they'd just be like, hey, we've been here too long. Yes, you have. Oh, no, no, you haven't. Um, I just maybe some of you are visiting, so just forget I just said that. Um, we want you to stay. Um, anyway, so, so moving on uh, with the scriptures. So what happens here is this, is everything goes swimmingly. And, and really why David is trying to get away from Achish is because he's trying to get out from underneath his, his view and his sight. And the reason for that is, is because at night, they're going on these different military campaigns. And when they're going, they're actually fighting the enemies of Israel. But Achish thinks they're fighting Israel every time they go out. So every time they get their men together and go out and fight and come back with all these hordes of sheep and goats and, 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 and all these things, when they come back, Achish is sitting there and he's thinking to himself, wow, this is going swimmingly. They're, they're killing the Israelites, my enemy. This is fantastic. But what really David was doing was he was fighting all the different enemies of Israel. And this goes so well for a period of time that what we find is uh, uh, that, that the king is, is, is misled and deceived he says of David that he had made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel, therefore shall always be my servant. He believed he had done so much damage to his relationship with Israel, he could never return. Now he pours all of his confidence in David. Well, all of this seems to go really well until one day when Achish gets an idea. And his idea is that he's going to gather all of his forces of the Philistines, and they're going to go, and they're going to attack Israel, and they're going to attack Saul. Well, this is puts... David in a very difficult position because the king comes to David and says, I want you to be my right-hand man in this battle. I want you to fight Saul and Israel with me. And David knows at this particular point he can't do anything, but keeping up the front, he says, well, very well, you, will, you shall know what your servant can do. In other words, again, he's like scrappy doing, right? Or let, him, let me at him, I'll splat him. And, 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 and he's trying to deceive them, thinking that he's actually going to be a great ally for him, but he, he's not. It's just a deception. And so at this particular point, we find David between a rock and a hard place because he can't fight against God's anointed. He's established that throughout the book. And he doesn't want to fight his own people. These are the very people that he is going to be the king and he's going to ultimately rule over. So he doesn't want to do any of that. What is he going to do? Because if he doesn't fight, then Achish is going to turn on him and his men and they're going to kill him, his family, and his men. What is he going to do? We don't know because the author doesn't tell us at least to this particular point. David is in big trouble, but then in chapter 28, beginning in verse 3, we find out that he's not alone. That Saul, who is chasing him, also finds him in a very similar situation where he finds himself in great trouble as well. Look at verse 3, if you will. The Bible says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the Medians and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled, and they came, and they encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped by Gilboa. 
When Saul saw the enemy of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Let me explain kind of what's going on here. Before Saul began to become disobedient to God, he was actually upholding the law of God and the word of God in the nation. One of the things that he did was to make sure that he cast out all the medians, all the necromancers, all the people trying to communicate with dead people. He upheld the law of God, which was, which was stated in, in the book of Deuteronomy there. And so what happens is he cast them all out to make sure that, that, they, don't, that, they, that they don't come back in. So he was doing something pretty good at the time. But now what they're really talking about is, he's t- is the, the author is trying to picture this, this hopeless situation for Saul. And here's the hopeless situation that he found himself in. He was, if he understood it geographically, where the Philistines are located, they are not only on higher ground, which would have been better for, better for a military campaign. They have a better army, greater technology with all types of chariots, which the Israelites wouldn't have had at the time. But they were also perfectly located upon a trade route that ran all the way through Israel, which would have kept um, Saul and his men from retreating or receiving any men or any supplies to be able to help them in the battle. They are in the worst possible scenario. And here's the key. Saul knows it. How do we know? Because it says when Saul saw the enemy of the uh, the Philistines, he was afraid in his heart, uh, trembled greatly. Now, understand, this is not a rookie. This is a man who is battle-tested. He's been through all types of battles, and now he sees that the enemy is so great, he realizes that he's in such a desperate situation that he begins to fear and literally begins to tremble at this particular point. He's in trouble. So what does he do? Well, he does what everybody seems to do when they find themselves in trouble. He calls out to God, right? That's something that believers and unbelievers have in common oftentimes. When they find themselves in great despair, what do they do? They call out to God. It's always interesting that unbelievers do that. That people that want nothing to do with God, that, that want to know about him, they don't want to live for him, they don't want to be with God's people, they, they don't want to submit to him at all. When all else fails, they love to be able to call out to God. And that's kind of a picture of Saul here. Everything, he hasn't wanted anything to do with God, follow God, obey God, all this point. Now he's in trouble, he begins to call out to him. But there's a problem. Verse 6, the Bible says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Let me explain really quickly. So what he's saying is he's calling out to God, but God's not speaking. He's not hearing anything from him. Not by dreams, that is special revelation, personal revelation to him, no visions for him. He says there's no Urim. Urim, the Urim and the Thummim were two different stones that the priest, high priest would wear on their vest. One was white, one was black, and the priest would use that to help the king to determine uh, uh, the will of God for his people. Well, why is there no Urim or Thummim? Why isn't God speaking that way? Because Saul's killed all of the priests. That's why. And then he's not speaking through a prophet. Why? Because Samuel has already passed away, and the remaining uh, prophets in the land aren't going to touch him. Why? Because uh, he was rejected by Samuel. So here he is in an incredible difficult, difficult place, and he finds himself all alone with no instruction with God. So when you're in that place, what do you do? When you're, in, when you're desperate, people tend to do desperate things, yes? And that's what he does here. Look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a median, and I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, this is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, and he put on other garments, and he went, and he and his men with them, and they came to the woman by night. Now, 
what you want to understand here is how desperate he actually is. Remember where they're located in Gilboa. In order to get to where this median is, they have to go right through this city where all of the Philistines are, so he disguises himself. He disguises himself, he dresses down, he takes off all of his jewelry, he, he, he takes just two men with him, and they even go at night. They're so desperate, they're even willing to risk their own lives to be able to get to this median. When they get there, he says to her, he says, and he said, divine for me by spirit and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know that Saul has done. Now he has cut off the medians and the necromancers from the land. Why are you lying a trap for me, uh, uh, my, my life, to bring about my death? Here's what we're understanding. Remember what I said just a minute ago? Just a moment ago, I said at one point, he was putting the necromancers out. That's what the scripture said. Now he's turning to the very things. This woman thinks that this might be a trap by the government, by Saul himself, for, him, for her to be ultimately put to death. He was at one time following the rule and the law. Now, let me, let me explain something really quickly. What often comes up in commentaries, in messages, and when you're sitting here with a Bible study and you're reading about the necromancers, in small group, here's the kind of conversation. Do you think really they could actually communicate with dead people? You know, do they think that? And that's what breaks out in our small groups. Do you think it's real? And all the guys are like, dude, that's just a bunch of stupid stuff. And then the ladies are like, no, this is a lady from Brooklyn? Uh, on television, and I see her, and she knows things. There's no way that she could know these things. And so all of a sudden, this big discussion is about, can this happen? Can this not happen? That's not the point. That's not the point. Now, apparently, it can happen because it ultimately happens here. But our question is not, does it work or not? The question for the believer, is it right or not? And God says, it doesn't matter whether it works. He says, no, it's not the right thing. Why? Because he doesn't want his people going to the bottom of the barrel, seeking the direction for life and the truth from life from dead people, from fortunes or fortune cookies. He wants his people to rely solely on a living God's word and his word alone. Amen? All right. Amen. Let's close this baby up. All right. Now, that, that's, that was just a bonus, but that's true. And that's what we find with the word of God. And so what we, here's what happens. He gets to the lady and he calms her down. And he says, look, lady, it's okay. Uh, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not here to be able to trap you. Just bring back the person that I want to be able to see. And she asks him, she says, in verse 11, she says, whom shall I bring up for you? And he says, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now, some people look at this and say, this is probably because she wasn't normally used to seeing dead people. And normally when she did it, it was probably just a big hoax where her husband is, you know, in the closet and her kids are upstairs in the attic and they're rattling chains and ooh, boo, doing all this. And then finally she calls for a dead person and this time dead person shows up, right? And wah, you know, I wasn't expecting that, but I thought you did this. Yeah, but not like this, right? And so he shows up and at the same time, simultaneously, somehow she's able to recognize that Saul is, is Saul. And she begins to fear, and once again, he, he, he tells her, don't, don't worry about this, it's okay. And he says, what is it that you see? Verse 13, he says, I see God coming, coming up out of the earth. And he says, what does he look like? And he says, an old man coming up, he is wrapped in a robe. And at this point, when he hears his description, he knows very well that this is Samuel himself. And so he, he, he puts himself prostrate on the ground. And in verse 15, it says, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in distress. Now notice this. For the Philistines are warring against me. Note the second half. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by 
prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Now, there are two things we want to be aware of when we find ourselves in the midst of difficulties. Here they are in light of that. Two things. Number one, let us know that as bad as things are, they could always be worse. Let us know for the believer in Jesus Christ, as bad as things are, and let's face it, things can get pretty bad, can they not? As bad as things are, they can always be worse. I want you to note, just use your imagination for a second, and I want you to understand what the author is doing with chapter 27 and chapter 28. At the end of chapter 27, beginning of chapter 8, really, really the author leaves us hanging. It's like a cliffhanger. It's kind of like one of those old shows that my parents used to see, or like some of you that are really, really old, like Craig Smith, one of our elders. And so what would happen is, is at the end of this show, it would be like a cliffhanger. It would be somebody riding towards the end edge of a cliff, and they would stop, and it says, next week, we'll see what happens to Tonto and Lone Ranger, right? And so it brings you back. It's 27 is the same way. The last time we check, he is surrounded by the enemy with nowhere to go, with nothing to do. We don't know what's going to happen to him. Then he moves us over immediately into chapter 28, and he tells us the difficulties that Saul is going through, and there's almost no difference between them. Both of them are surrounded by the enemies. Both of them have nowhere to turn. Both of them, we don't know what's going to do. But in essence, what the author is saying is, but as bad as it is for David, it's even worse for Saul. Not because the situation was different. A matter of fact, their situations, their, their, their temporal problems looked almost exactly the same. Both of them were surrounded by the enemy, and, and they could be killed, and, and so it looked exactly the same. But here's what he's saying. As bad as that is, it's worse because Saul was not only in trouble, but he was without God. What is worse for you and for me than any kind of trouble you can imagine on this earth in the temporal sense is to be there and be in trouble without God. This is what distressed Saul so much. He said it, let me read it again. He says, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. For the true believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who's truly been redeemed, truly born again, we're going to experience all kinds of difficulties, but what makes those difficulties possible to navigate and to get through and gives us hope is know that God is always in them. You know, look, many of us, when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ, and you're going to ignore this because you think you're so theologically savvy, but this is what happens is most of us, when we came to Jesus Christ, this isn't exactly what we were expecting, right? And let me, let me explain that. When I thought I came to faith in Christ, I'll just explain my own errors, and you just join me, if you will. But when I came to Christ, I, I was surprised when bad things began to happen to me after I accepted Jesus into my heart, right? You get them in your heart, you're going to be okay. We don't talk that way, but we say when you truly come to faith and God saves you, there is an inkling in your mind that you think everything should be going pretty smooth with me. And as soon as things begin to fall apart and troubles begin to come their way, what happens? You're like, what is wrong with this thing? Is this thing still under warranty? I mean, is this, is this exactly what we signed up for? And we have that miscommunication, that misunderstanding about salvation. But it, once again, the Bible tells us that, that we have all of those difficulties. We experience very much the same problems, difficulties, and hardships as unbelievers do. They're even promised to us. But for the believer in Jesus Christ all the way through it, what makes all the difference in the world is knowing that God is with us. There, there's a pastor that said one time, and I think he said it correctly. He said, oftentimes, he goes, when we're first born again, we think that when God comes to save us, he's coming to save us out of all of our difficulties. The truth is, the Bible teaches us, when he comes to save us of our sins, he comes to get in the difficulties with us, not to immediately get us out of them. 
you said, does that make a difference? Well, it made a difference for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. Three young men who refused to be able to bow down to a graven image. And there they are, and it's not like they escape. Hey, man, they serve God. Now they're going to escape and not have to go into the fiery furnace. Every single one of them were cast into the fiery furnace. But the difference was that God was with them. Did that make all the difference it did for them? We look again, we look at Moses, and maybe you remember the story of Moses after he has gotten their men, got the Israelites out of Egypt. And there they come into this great big mountain. And when they come to Mount Sinai, God tells him he wants them to leave and he wants them to go to a land that he had promised to his forefather Abraham. And now stop and think about this for a minute. Don't you think he knew that this was going to be a difficult trail? He knew that when he went to this place that there were people living in that land, giants, by the way. And when he got there, they weren't just going to go, oh, you guys want our land? Fine, take it. He knew that when he went there, there were going to be tremendous difficulties and hardships along the way. So here's what he says. He said to him specifically, he says, if your presence will not come with me, do not bring me up from here. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be difficult. But I'll tell you what, I'll go. But if you're not going to be with me, I don't want to go. You think the difference... God's presence made a difference for him. It did for him. We see this again. Remember that in the New Testament, we see it all through the scriptures, but in the New Testament, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's about to leave. He's about to go. And he's about, for the first time in three and a half years, he's going to leave his disciples all by themselves. And now he's told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do you think they were sitting there going, all right, brother, this is going to be a blast. You know, they were sitting there going, man, this is pretty heavy. In fact, we're supposed to go and proclaim the very one that the world has just crucified. And Jesus told us that if they persecuted me, they shall likewise persecute us. They knew it was going to be difficult. They knew that it was going to be great problems. But before they go, Jesus leaves them with this. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. For the true believer in Jesus Christ, the presence of God makes all the difference in the world. You could be in that difficulty, but without God, without his presence, without his power, without his promises, without all those things. And that's a miserable place to be, a horrific place to be able to be. Now, let me, let me just say this. When I sit there and say, hey, listen, things could be worse, I don't mean that in some flippant way. You, you know, like the guy that you work with and, you know, he's got the little cubby and you walk in, and you're like, man, my neck is killing me. He like pops up and he goes, well, hey, man, you don't got it so bad. At least you got a neck. <laughs> There's people out there even without a good neck, right? And you're sitting there and you don't know whether to be angry because they're not, you know, they, they, they don't feel your pain and they're not being merciful to you or to be disturbed that there's people out there without necks. You're just not sure which one it's ultimately to be. But, but when I sit there and say, hey, listen, things could be worse, I, I don't mean that in a flippant way for you. What I mean is, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's all about perspective. And it's not that things are going to be easier or not as many difficulties, but the perspective of the believer is these are possible and we're capable to go through them because God is with us and that makes all the difference in the world. There's a second thing I think we see here. Not only let us be aware that as bad as things are, they could be much worse. I think you would all agree, amen? I think number two, let us be aware of the danger of ignoring God's word. Let us be aware of the danger of ignoring God's word. Listen, so the Bible tells us very carefully why, why Saul's in such big trouble. He explains it from a physiological standpoint and physical standpoint with the enemy, but also a spiritual standpoint in that God has now abandoned him and he's not speaking. But the God is so gracious to let us know how he got there. He's not only telling us the what was happening, but the why these things were happening. And in the scriptures, this is always the grace of God for us, so we can learn from them. 
And he says in verse 18, he sums it all up when Samuel begins to talk to Saul. And he says, here's why you're going through this. Here's why God is silent. Here's why God has abandoned you. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. And if you look at 16 through 18, what he begins to do is he explains something that happened earlier in the book itself. And earlier in the book, God had spoken to Samuel to speak to Saul and he told him to wipe out all the enemies of God, all the Amalekites, wipe out every single one of them and, and, and don't touch any of the accursed things. That is, don't take the, they're, they're so wicked. Don't, don't touch their sheep. Don't touch their, their goats. Just destroy everything. They're, they're so hideously sinful. And he was mostly obedient. He went in, he went ahead, and he wiped out all of, the, uh, all of the people, but yet he left there, and he took with them, guess what, and gave to the people all of the goods. When he's confronted then at this particular point by his sin, by the prophet, he comes to him and says, why didn't you obey God? Here's what he says. He says he begins to do what many of us do. He begins to rationalize his sin. Have you ever done that before? Why'd you do what was wrong? Well, I just thought that maybe this was more important. And here's what he did. He said, well, what we figured that why throw away this perfectly good stuff when we could use it in a sacrifice to God? That's why I did it. That's why I did what was ultimately wrong. See how he's rationalizing his sin? And, and, and he says, and then basically the prophet comes to him and says, but God didn't ask you to sacrifice. He asked you to obey. He asked you to wipe every single one of them out. And then at the very end, that's where we get that saying. He says it himself, for God, obedience is greater than sacrifice. And so he began a downward spiral of hearing, listen, hearing the clear word of God and rejecting it over and over and over and over and over and over again until finally, when he finds himself in a difficult place, he calls out for the very word of God that he's rejected so many times. And this time, God refuses to speak or give a word to him in the midst of his difficulty. Yael Ralph Davis, who I've, I've quoted many times in this, this, he says a great quote. He says, if you despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. And for a believer in Jesus Christ, that means something, does it not? Here's what I want you to understand. Saul really didn't care whether God was speaking to him or not. He just wanted God's word, but it wasn't because he wanted to be in communion with God. All he wanted to do is have a way to get out of his difficulty. Those are two completely different things. If you don't feel today as though God is speaking to you, what bothers you is not that you're not getting direction. What bothers you more is that God's not speaking because what you want more than anything is him. What you want more than anything is a relationship with God. And so here, here we have the Bible warns us from this kind of thing of, of making sure that we obey God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says it this way. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. The word quench there literally means is suppressing fire. And I think it's interesting that in the New Testament, the, the, the Holy Spirit is pictured as a fire many times. You remember when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, hey, look, the one that is coming after me is far greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he goes, but the one who comes, I baptize you with water, but the one that comes to baptize you after me will baptize you with the Spirit and with what? With fire. Then on the day of Pentecost, they're sitting there and he says, I'm going to send my deliverer. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and you see these little tongues of fire coming down on each of them. Every person in here has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. The Holy Spirit working in them. And you know when it happens often? Most often is when the word of God is being proclaimed and when the word of God is being taught. When you and I are being confronted with that word, the Holy Spirit honors his word because it exalts Jesus Christ. 
And it takes that word and it begins to give you understanding, true understanding of what it is that God says. Because the scriptures in 1 Corinthians says that the, the things that are spiritual are spiritually discerned only through the Spirit of God. So if you understand the things of God, it's because the Holy Spirit begins to take that word and give you understanding. And then note this, then he takes it and he drives it down with a branding iron into your heart, into my heart. And he begins to expose what is wrong. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is very much, understand this, the grace of God begins to work in us and show us where we are wrong and where we've gone off. And he begins to drive that into our heart. And that unction that he puts inside of our heart is God's grace because it gives us the strength and the motivation to repent and to turn from him. You got that? But when you and I, all the grace of God, but... When you and I continually disobey, when you and I are, 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 are rationalizing our sin, ignoring the word of God, willfully disobeying time and time and time and time again, you can quench that spirit to the point that you feel like you can't even hear God anymore. The word of God is being preached from the pulpit week after week. You're reading in your word and you're sitting there and go, I got it, but nothing's stirring me. Nothing's moving me. What's happening? Now, I want to be very careful here because according to to David, there were sometimes that he was even obedient, but sometimes he had a hard time hearing God, okay? So there's those times that maybe God might be silent to be able to test our, 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 our faith. But it is very true that I believe, according to the teaching of Scripture, in the broad sense, that there could be a time that you are pushing and suppressing the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit so much and so often from the clarity of God's Word. Let me explain this. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about subjective God told me. I don't even know what to do that for y'all, okay? I'm just letting you know, God told me, I don't know what to tell you, all right? God told me to do this. God told me to make an apple pie, give it to my neighbor. Okay, go give an apple pie to your neighbor. But I didn't give an apple pie to my neighbor. Please, I, I, I have no information for you on this. But when we talk about objectivity, objective truth, God's word, and you hear it on Sunday morning, and you read it in your quiet time, and you have it in your family devotions, and God quickens your heart, and you begin to feel and understand that this is God's word, but you suppress that thing, there's a way for you to suppress it to the point that when you find yourself in great difficulty, you can't hear the clear word and direction of God. And that's enough to drive fear in every heart of every single believer. But for, but for some, for unbelievers, it, the truth of the matter is, it can be even worse than that. For an unbeliever, the reason that it can be worse is the fact that the Holy Spirit can come and he can begin to work on your heart and he can begin to call you and draw you and, and, and share. There, there are many people, and this is one thing that I say whenever I'm sharing the gospel with somebody. And that is, hey, brother, I, sister, I want, you to, I want you to consider the cost of following Jesus. Because this isn't easy believism. This isn't just, hey, man, okay, I believe, okay, I'm going to follow him and then live your life whatever way you want. True faith in Christ demonstrates a radical transformation in the way in which we live and what we live for. Would you agree? Say amen. And it's not something that we're yearning, forcing ourselves to do. It's not by our will. It's by the grace and the transforming power of God within us. But there's a commitment in each of us that say, I'm not going to live the way that I live. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to submit to him. And let me tell you this. That there are times when you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ time and time again, and people will sit back and say, I'm considering the cost, and the cost is too high. I have to leave my friends, and I've got to leave my, my, my family. I may lose a job. I may do whatever. But you, and, and that's a great thing. You need to consider that. But you also need to consider the alternative. 
And that is separation from God for all eternity in a fiery hell, which you and I would be fully deserving of. And some of you would sit there and go, Mike, that's not why I've come to this church. I don't come for you to be able to try to manipulate. I think if you've been here long enough, I don't try to manipulate, but I want to be clear of the teaching of God's word. That you can come to the point that the Holy Spirit is calling you time and time and time again, and you quench and you grieve so many times, that finally God says, that's enough. You said, when does that happen? I don't know. But I do believe that the teaching of the Word of God is to drive a healthy fear inside of our life so that today, those who are holding out by repenting and placing their faith in Jesus Christ will do just that by the power of God and grace of God. Because if you don't, the ultimate happens. And that's what we see really in the rest of the story. And the rest of the story, what eventually happens is he doesn't listen. Look at verse 8, pick up, and, and I'll try to close off here. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out, verse 18, out, out the fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You know what he's saying? You're going to die. The penalty of our sin is death. He kept sinning, kept sinning, kept sinning, didn't obey. At that particular point, guess what he does? He's lost, he's gone, he dies. It's the consequence of his sin. Specifically in this context, it is the sin of him trying to call on dead people. Look at verse 20. I'll do this very quickly. Then Saul fell on his face full length on the ground. He filled with fear because of the, the words of Saul. And there was no strength in him, for he had, not, he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the, and the woman came to Saul. And, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, she said, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and I've listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel. Now, note this, mark this, these words, a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and he said that I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to the words. And so he arose from the earth and he sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and she baked unleavened bread of it and she put it she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate this is his last supper the next day he's going to die this is his last supper and the bible tells us mark this if you don't if you're not offended by writing in your bible it, that last sentence then they rose and they went away that night when you look through the Word of God from the Old Testament and New Testament, the night is not a good thing. In fact, when you read this, you almost can't help but to think of another Last Supper, can you? There's another Last Supper that we see in the New Testament. It's the one of Jesus when he gathers his disciples together the night before he's, he's to go to death. Here, this is his Last Supper before he dies for his sin. Uh, later on, there will be a Last Supper that Jesus Christ comes and he will eat a Last Supper, but he will die not for his sin, but for the sin of the world. And there's a young man there with him, and he's very much like Saul. And, and this man, his name is Judas. And he's just like Saul, where he was chosen. Uh, Saul was chosen by God to be the king. Uh, this young man, Judas, was chosen by Jesus to be his disciple. A lot of similarities here. And so what we find is both of them experience the word of God, being in the presence of God, being used of God. But yet all of them, the Bible says at the end, refused to obey, refused to receive him, and they went out, as the Bible says, into the night, which means and stands for, I believe, is just eternal lostness. They were lost. They went out in the darkness. And then now we see in the same exact kind of writing in John 13, 30, listen, even down to the description of the morsel of the bread, it says after, speaking of Judas, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. 
I'm telling you right here tonight, if Jesus Christ is calling you and convicting you and moving your heart, and you sit there and you're thinking to yourself, I have more time, I'm not trying, look, I'm not trying to manipulate you at all. I'm just trying to preach the clear teaching of the word of God. And that clear word of God is you do not want to quench the spirit and God calling on your life or one day it may be too late and you may be so far from God that you want to repent, but you aren't able to be able to do so. But there's good news. So good, because that's pretty heavy. And it's not only that we need to be aware that as bad as things are, that they could be worse. And not only let us be aware of the danger of ignoring God's word, but very simply, let us be aware that Jesus experienced the darkness so that we would not have to. When you get to the death of Jesus Christ after his death and he comes to the cross, the Bible says that darkness came all over the whole earth. And in the midst of that darkness, Jesus says within the midst of that, he says, Mark chapter 15, verse 34, very similar to what we hear with Saul here. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason he was forsaken is because the sins of those who would believe were placed on the person of Jesus Christ. And when they were, God abandoned him just like he did there with Saul. But the Bible says that Jesus experienced it so that those who would repent and believe in him by faith the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the power of your word.